the first question is from Suzanne, who is in India, and, I sh and she'd like to ask two questions. Hello, Michael. Thank you very much. I just have a couple of questions, if you could help me uh, with them. The first is um, about uh, the ego. And Bhagavan says the ego projects uh, this world and at the same time um, rises by grasping form. Yes. So am I right in understanding then that that is a, a simultaneous process? Yes. E even to say that it rises by grasping form, it, um, that is what Bhagavan says in verse 25 of Uludunapadu is, Urupatri Undam. That means grasping form, it rises. If we say it rises, it, or not rises, it comes into existence. If we say it comes into existence by grasping form, that doesn't quite fit because it must exist in order to grasp form. So it's it's rising and it's projecting and it's grasping form all occur simultaneously. That is what Bhagavan is emphasizing in verse 25 of Uludunapadu. What what he what he says there is grasping form, it comes into existence. Grasping form, it stands. Grasping and feeding on forms, it flourishes abundantly. Leaving form, it grasps form. What he implies there is that the very nature of ego is to grasp form. And in the last line, he says, he describes ego as uruvatra pe ahande. Uruvatra means formless. Pei means uh, a phantom or an evil spirit, and Ahande means ego. So ego is a, a formless phantom or evil spirit. Because it's formless, whatever forms it grasps are things other than itself. So ego is the subject. Everything else, all the vishayas, are forms or objects. They're things known by us. So ego Ego cannot rise without projecting and grasping forms. Um, that's its very nature. And it cannot stand without continuing to project and grasp form. And by projecting and grasping form, it flourishes abundantly. Uh, and leaving one form, it grasps another form. So it cannot stand for a moment without grasping form. So it is true to say ego cannot come into existence without grasping form. That doesn't mean that it comes into existence by grasping form. By coming into existence, it grasps form would be a better way of saying it. That is, its very nature is to grasp form. But the most important sentence in that verse is the sentence I haven't yet said, which is what he says after saying, um, um, leaving form, it grasps form. If sought, it takes flight. It is the nature of ego is to rise, stand, and flourish by grasping form. That means by attending to things other than itself. But if instead of grasping things other than itself, if it tries to grasp itself, if it tries to see who am I, if it looks, instead of looking outwards at other things, if it looks back within it itself, there's no such thing as ego to be found because we seem to be ego only so long as we're not looking at ourselves. So long as we're looking at other things, we seem to be ego. If we look at ourselves, there's no such thing as ego to be found. That's why he said, if sought, it takes flight. 
<coughs> that is what Bhagavan has revealed in that verse 25 of Ulladunapadu. That is, I would say, the in the whole of all of Vedanta literature, in all the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, the Brahma Sutra, all the commentaries on them, all the other works on uh, Vedanta philosophy, the most important teaching in all of Vedanta is verse 25 of Uludunapadu. Because in verse 25 of Uludunapadu, firstly Bhagavan says, points out what is the problem, our rising as ego. What is the nature of ego? To grasp form. And by grasping form, it rises, it stands, and it flourishes. But if instead of grasping form, it tries to grasp itself, if it tries to find, seek its own reality, tries to see who am I, it will thereby subside and dissolve back into its source. That is the essence of Bhagavan's teachings. And Bhagavan's teachings are the essence of all of Vedanta. So I don't think there is any other um, verse in all, or any other passage in the whole of the vast ocean of Vedantic literature that is as, as crucial as this verse, because here Bhagavan points out what is the cause of bondage, what is the means to liberation. That is, bondage, as he said in the previous verse, is nothing but ego. Ego, the nature of ego is to rise, stand, and flourish, grasping form. So he, ego will always be grasping form, but instead of grasping form, if it tries to grasp itself, there's nothing for it to hold on to because it's a formless phantom. So it will subside and dissolve back into its source. In other words, we seem to be ego only so long as we don't look at ourselves. So long as we're looking at other things, we, we are dancing and flourishing as ego and getting ourselves into all sorts of trouble. All we need to do is to turn and look back within to find out who am I, to see what we actually are, and this ego will take flight, and what will remain is what we always actually are, namely the pure awareness of our own being, I am. Is that a satisfactory explanation? It is. Thank you. Thank you. Right. Um, so the question is, is it true that Ramana only publicly declared his mother and one other student to be enlightened? And also it seems as irrespective of whatever spiritual path and method one chooses, the chances of liberation within, within a single lifetime are absolutely minuscule. Could this therefore deter people, especially the masters, from even considering embarking on a road of self-inquiry as the odds seem firmly stacked against the seeker? People won't believe in self-realization if they don't see people becoming free amongst the millions of seekers and may even consider it to be a fantasy and consider ignorance to be a more blissful existence to remain in. Firstly, there is no person who is self-realized. A self-realized person is a contradiction in terms. Self-realization means being aware of ourselves as we actually are. So long as we are aware of ourselves as I am a person, we are in ignorance. Secondly, Bhagavan didn't go around certifying people as jnanis or agnanis. Sometimes when they, people who, because people's minds are outward going, they're very curious to know about others. What did Bhagavan tell us? Find out who you are. Find out who am I. But instead of trying to find out who am I, I'm very interested. Is this one a jnani? Is that one a jnani? We, we, this is the outward going mind. Bhagavan used to say, all this questioning about the state of others is 
anatma vichara. We need to give up anatma vichara and take to atma vichara. Anatma vichara means investigating what is not ourself. But in spite of Bhagavan teaching this so clearly, still people, even people who were living in the present, they still had outward going mind and were still curious about all these things. So if ever there was talk in Bhagavan's presence about uh, whether such and such a person is a jnani or not, sometimes people would even ask Bhagavan, Bhagavan, is this person, is this great Mahatma, is he a jnani or, or not? Bhagavan sometimes replied, there is only one jnani and you are that. That is, so long as we are looking outwards, so long as we are seeing people, we are, if we see Bhagavan as a person, we are seeing him as, a, as an Agnani. Being a person is itself Agnana. Bhagavan is not a person. Bhagavan is, in our view, he seems to be a person. Because we mistake ourselves to be a person, we mistake him to be a person. But he is not the person he seems to be. He is that which is always shining in our heart as I. So Bhagavan says, for example, in, um, in verse 13 of Uludhanapadu, Bhagavan says in the first sentence, Jnanamam tane me. That means oneself who is jnana alone is real. So since jnana is our very nature, the question of whether we are jnani or not is, is it's, it's ignorance. It, we are, you are already that. What did what do the Upanishads say? Tatvamasi, you are that. So, okay, I am Brahman, but am I an ignorant Brahman or am I a, 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 am I a liberated Brahman? There's no such thing as an ignorant Brahman. Brahman is ever liberated. We bondage is not real. Bondage seems to be real because we don't look at ourselves. So long as we're looking outwards, we seem to be in bondage because we seem to be this person. If we look within. We will see, but we are ever liberated. So for Bhagavan, all this question about who is jnani, who is not jnani, this is just ignorance. In the view of Bhagavan, there's no such thing as ajnana at all. There is only jnana. That alone is real. Jnana mam tane me. That alone is what is real. So in Bhagavan's view, he doesn't see us as jnanas. He sees us as himself. And he is jnana swarupa, the very nature of jnana. So all people who, are, who ask whether who Bhagavan certifies as a jnani, they have completely misunderstood Bhagavan, they've completely misunderstood his teachings. You are already that. All we need to do is to turn our attention within and see what we actually are. Why we haven't seen what we actually are yet? Because we are not yet willing to surrender ourselves completely. All that is required is that wholehearted willingness to surrender ourselves. Until we are willing to surrender ourselves, we will remain in bondage. Because ourself as ego is itself bondage. So let's not worry about others. Others will seem to exist so long as we seem as so long as we rise as ego. When we turn within and see ourselves as we actually are, we will see. But we alone are what actually exists. There are no, there are no others, there are no Ajnanas. I hope that is an adequate answer to that question. I see Suzanne has come back now. Yes, um, thank you, Michael. So it's about intensity of practice. Yes. And this passage in Guru Vachka Kavai just intrigued me. 
when um, Bhagavan says, the act of communion with the self or remaining still inwardly is intense activity which is performed with the entire mind and without a break. And then he goes on to say, the sage is characterized by eternal and intense activity. His stillness is like the apparent stillness of a fast rotating top. Its very speed cannot be followed by the eye and so it appears to be still, yet it is rotating. So is the apparent inaction of the sage. I mean, this right. for me is like, well, how how can this be? This is the motionless Arunachala, and yet he's talking about intense activity. Okay. Uh, so oh. could you clarify that? And also, does that have does that have implications for our own intensity of practice? That we should be really intensifying our own practice. Thank you. Um, okay. Well, um, if we want real clarification, we have to turn within. That is, the real clarity comes only from within. Bhagavan sometimes talked in paradoxical way, in using paradoxical terms. He sometimes talked about doing without doing, seeing without seeing, knowing without knowing. So we, we, we shouldn't take the words just at face value. For example, that um, I referred earlier to... Um, the verse of uh, Akshramlai, that is, I think, verse 15. Kannaku kannai kanindri kanune kanu vadevaparanachala. He says, being the eye to the eye, you see without eyes. So what's he mean? In what way does Arunachala see without eyes? Arunachala sees the reality of everything without seeing the appearance of anything. That's what Bhagavan means by seeing without seeing or knowing without knowing. Likewise, doing without doing, what is doing? Do, our real nature is not doing, but being. But doing is just, a, is just being viewed through the distorted eyes of ego. So it's only in the view of ego that there's action, that there's activity. But what the reality lying behind all the activity we see, if we look about the world, so many activities are going on, all kinds. What is the one reality behind all these activities? Pure being, as you say, Arunachala. Achala means unmoving. So the, the, when Bhagavan talks about that intense activity, what he means is the reality behind all action is that intense being, that pure being I am. So that the activity Bhagavan is talking about is the doership, is the 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 do the the undoing without doing. So it, it's not we shouldn't we shouldn't equate it with activity in the sense in which he, he's talking about something much, much deeper here. What we see as doing is actually just being. And if we want to see everything as just being, we need to see ourselves as just being. If we turn our attention back within, we will see that being alone is the reality. There never was any, there never was any doer or any doing. The doer is ego. Uh, when we rise as ego, we seem to we, we identify ourselves with mind, speech, and body, and we seem to be doing so many activities. That is what Bhagavan refers to as the intense activity is the, the, the actionless activity of just being as we actually are. 
incidentally, what was that? Which verse number of Guruvachya Kavai was that? Just so that it's, anyone who wants to refer to it can. Yes, it's number 1186. Right, right, right. Yeah, okay, thank you, Michael. Was that a clear explanation? Did it make sense what I said? Um, it does make sense. It does. Yeah. It uh, makes sense when we um, view this kind of through the eyes of ego rather than actually um, seeing that I am what it is. Yes. Um, yes. And, and um, it just reminds me also of St. Paul when he says, um, pray without ceasing, and also the first commandment of Jesus when he says, you know, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, strength, and soul. You know, it, there is that, there's nothing else apart from yes, yes. self, is there? How, how can we pray ceaselessly? Even if you are able to pray ceaselessly throughout waking and dream, how can you pray ceaselessly in sleep? If you take prayer to be an activity, you cannot pray ceaselessly. Ceaseless prayer means being as we actually are. Then only what is ceaseless is only being. So when Bhagavan says that we, Bhagavan defines Atma Vichara as Sada Kalamum, uh, Manate, Atma, uh, uh, Atma Bil, Atma Bil, uh, Vaitiripatiku, always keeping the mind fixed in oneself. That alone is what is called Atma Vichara, he says in the 16th paragraph of Nana. So why does he say always? Because our nature is to always be. The only thing that is always is our being. So if we're holding on to our being, we are always that. It's only when we rise as ego that time and space and everything else comes into existence. So if we want to sink deep into ourselves, we need to hold on to ourselves so firmly that our self-attentiveness becomes eternal. Because self, that, that pure self-awareness is our very nature. Is that clear? That's very clear. Thank you, Michael. Right. I've got it. Yeah, lovely. Right. Thank you so right. much. Right. Um, and Shankari, did you want to ask a question? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Shalini. Um, so, Michael, my question is about uh, the reference you gave on your first answer. About on verse 25 of Ulladanarpadu, right? Yes. So I have heard your explanations before, but I thought I got the point, but suddenly I feel that I don't quite get it. So it, it says, Uruvatra pei agandai, right? So yes. if it, which means that there is no form. So it is formless, but it is still something, right? So how, how do we, uh, how to look for it? it seems to be something so long as we're looking outwards. When he says Uruvatra, that means it's got no form of its own. When he says it, it describes it as a pay, a phantom or a spirit, an evil spirit, that implies it's got no substance of its own. To understand what he means by Uruvatra pay, we need to refer to the previous verse, verse 24. What does he say in verse 24? He begins by saying, Jada Udal Nanadu, the insentient body does not say I. What he means by not say I, it's not aware of itself as I. Why is it not aware of itself? Because it's Jada. Jada means it's not aware. So, and the, what he means by body is all the five sheaths. As he said in verse 5, 
uh, the body is a form composed of five sheaths. Therefore, all five are included in the term body. So when he said the insentient body does not say I, he means all these five sheaths, they are not, they are not aware and therefore not aware of themselves as I. So uh, being aware of oneself as I is not the nature of the body. And then in the next sentence, he says, Satchit Udiyadu. Satchit does not rise. So rising is not the nature of Satchit. Being aware of itself as I is not the nature of the body. But between these two, one thing rises as the extent of, one thing I rises as the extent of the body. Nanondru, one thing I. Because it's aware of itself as I, it is not the body. Because it rises, it is not satchit. That's why he says in between. When he says in between, that's a metaphorical way of saying it. That, that we can say there are two significances of saying in between. Firstly, the only link between satchit, which alone is what actually exists, and the body and world, which are what seem to exist, is ego. It is the only link between them. So in that sense, it's between. It's the, it's the go-between, we can say. Um, because why? Because body and world exist only in the view of ego. That, so that's one meaning of in-between. The other implication of in-between is, supposing you read a story in the newspaper, and you're not quite sure whether it's true or false. So you may ask a friend of yours, uh, I read this story. Is it is it it is true or is it false? Your friend may say it's neither true nor false. It's somewhere in between. What do they mean by somewhere in between? It's got certain elements of truth and certain elements of falsehood. So it's neither entirely true nor entirely false. It's it's got a little bit of both. Uh, likewise, ego. It's not entirely false like the body. It's not entirely true, like Satchit. It, it, it borrows from the body, it borrows a form. From Satchit, it borrows its substance. Its substance being uh, Sat and Chit, being an awareness. So the existence of ego, it borrows from Satchit. The awareness of ego, it borrows from Satchit. The form that it now takes itself to be, it borrows from. Um, from the body. So does ego actually exist? Why does he say in verse 25, if sought it takes flight? Because it doesn't actually exist. It seems to exist only when you don't look at it closely enough. Saying it, it sought it takes flight is like saying, if you, if you look at the snake carefully enough, it will run away. What does that mean? If you look at the snake carefully enough, what do you see? Oh, it's not a snake, it's just a rope. That is what he means by it takes flight or it runs away. So it, the snake doesn't actually exist. Something exists there. What exists there is a rope, but we see the rope as a snake. So the rope, the snake is real as a rope. It's unreal as a snake. Likewise, ego is real as such it. It's unreal as ego. Is that clear? Yeah, yes, Michael, definitely. Thank you. So in the same um, example you give, like 
rope and snake. So here, what we think of rope as snake is the ego. So what does the rope here represent? Such is it. Okay. Even In though it's you, what you actually are. Mm -hmm. So it is it, such it, it so... that is now appearing as such it is what shine always shines as I am. But now we are not aware of ourselves as just I am. We're aware of ourselves as I am Shankari, I am Michael. This that, that is the ego is the adjunct mixed awareness. The pure awareness is I am. The, the adjunct mixed awareness is I am this body, I am this person, I am Shankari, I am Michael, I am whoever. That is ego. The body, the Shankari is not ego, Michael is not ego. The I that says I am Shankari or I am Michael, that is ego. Yeah, that, that is clearer now. And that is a formless phantom because it's got no form of its own. Now it may seem to be Shankari. Before Shankari was born, it was taking itself to be some other person. When Shankari dies, it'll take itself to be some other person until it dies. And that is why we have come to Bhagavan for the death of ego. That is what Bhagavan's teachings are all about. But for the death of that which never existed. But though it never existed, it's causing us a lot of trouble. But to, to whom is all this trouble? To the non-existent ego. So to be free of all its trouble, all the non-existent ego needs to do is to look at itself and see what it actually is. Because though it is non-existent as ego, it is real as such it. So ego is neither wholly uh, real nor wholly unreal. Because it's got that element of such it. It's got that element I am. That is the reality of ego. That is what we are seeking to know. Who am I? Was that all you wanted to ask? Yes, Michael. Thank you very much. Okay. There are two questions um, from Rishi. Um, the first is, uh, is turning your attention back within a form of doing? And also, what is the faculty of attention referred to in Advaita? And uh, should I read the second one out later, Michael? Or? Yeah, I think that one at a time is better. Turning our attention within is not an activity, it is a cessation of activity. That is, as Bhagavan says in that verse 25, grasping form, it comes into existence. Grasping form, it stands. Grasping and feeding on forms, it flourishes abundantly. Leaving form, it grasps form. If sought, it takes flight. So, so long as we are grasping form, that is, so long as we are allowing our attention to go outwards towards things other than ourselves, towards forms, that is activity. Because the move, Attending to anything other than ourself is an activity because it involves a movement of our attention away from ourself towards that other thing. That is, but all activity begins with mental activity. A mental activity is nothing but the attention we give to things other than ourselves. That is what is called mental activity. Mental activity leads to activity of speech and body. So the root of all activity is. 
attending to things other than ourselves. Instead of attending to other things, if we turn our attention back to ourselves, this attending ego will begin to subside. The attending and doing ego will subside. So attending to ourself is not an activity, but a cessation of activity. It's a cessation of the doer of activity. The doer of activity is ego. When ego turns its attention back on itself, when it tries to hold on to its being, it thereby subsides back into its being and remains as it actually is. So attending to ourself is not a doing, but a being. Bhagavan makes this clear in Upadeshundia. In verse, after talking about all the various uh, bhakti practices, the doings of bhakti, the puja, japa, and dhyana, he describes each of them and what is their relative, their effective only insofar as they purify the mind. And each one is more, effect, more effective than, pu, than puja, is japa. More effective in japa is dhyana. Effective in what? In purifying the mind. But then in verse 8 he says, Anya bhavatin avanahamahum ananya bhavamayundipara anaitimu utamamundipara. That means rather than anya bhava. Anya means what is other. And so anya bhava in this context means meditating on what is other. In other words, taking God to be something other than ourselves. Meditating on the name or form of God, that is Anyabhava. So rather than that Anyabhava, Ananyabhava. Ananyabhava means meditating on what is not other. What is not other than ourself? We alone are not other than ourselves. So it means medit and what he calls there Ananyabhava is self-attentiveness. In other words, self-abhavichara, self-investigation. So he says, Ananyabhava. He describes that Ananya Baba as Abhanaham Ahom Ananya Baba. That means the Ananya Baba in which he is I. That means when we understand God is not something outside of ourselves, God is our own realities, what is shining in our heart as I. So when we understand Abhan Aham means he is I, Ahom means in, in which he is I. Uh, ahum is there a relative um, or adjectival participle. So it's qualifying, the, it's describing the, the, the Ananya Baba in which he is I. Um, that is Anatinam Utman, that is the best among all. That's what he says in verse 8. Why does he say it's the best among all? Among all the means to purify the mind, rather than doing anything by body, puja, or by speech, japa, or by mind, dhyana, rather than doing anything, just attending to ourselves, which is not a doing but just being, that is best among all. Why do I, what authority do I have for saying that is just being? He clearly indicates in the next verse, in verse 9 he says, bhava balatinal, that means by the strength of meditation. What meditation? We have to make the connection with the previous verse. The previous verse, what is the meditation he's talking about? Ananya Bhava. In other words, meditating on nothing other than oneself. So by the strength of that meditation, the Ananya Bhava, uh, Ananya Bhava, uh, sorry, um, Bhava Balatinal, Bhava Natita, Sabhava Tirutale Undipara, Parabhakti Tattvam Undipara. That means, uh, being in Satbhava, Satbhava means the, the, the state of being, 
uh, Bhavana Tita, which transcends Bhavana. Here, Bhavana means meditation in the form of mental activity. So it is it, it trans it's it's a state of being which transcends all mental activity. Being in that state, how to be in that state? By the strength of uh, by Baba Balam. Now, what Baba? It's not meditating on God. If you're meditating on, on something other than ourselves, you, so long as you take God to be other than yourself, you're meditating on Him as a mental activity because your attention is going from yourself to the, whatever idea you have of God. But if instead of taking God to be something other than yourself, if you recognize God is that which is shining in your heart as I, and therefore meditate on nothing other than I, by the strength of that meditation, you will subside and remain in the state of being, which transcends all mental activity. And that Bhagavan says is Parabhakti Tattva. That is the nature of supreme devotion. So what is the greatest practice of bhakti, it is not puja, it is not japa, it is not dhyana, it is swarupa dhyana, meditating on ourself alone, meditating on nothing other than ourself, that is the greatest, uh, highest uh, bhakti. Why? Because God, what is the real nature of God? He's that which is shining in our heart as I. So what better way to uh, to uh, worship him than to meditate upon I alone. And by meditating on I, ego will subside and we remain in the state of being. So that is the state of surrender. We can't, we can't remain in Satbhava. Satbhava too means in Satbhava, Irutale means being, just being in Satbhava. How can we be in Satbhava so long as we rise as ego? As, as Bhagavan says in the next verse, verse 10, uh, udita iditil, odungi iratal, be subsiding and being in the place from which we rose. The place from which we rose is, sat, is uh, Satbhava, the state of being. Now, well, the pure being that we actually are, that is the place from which we rose. So we have to subside and be in that. How do we subside and be in that? Only by self-attentiveness. So self-attentiveness is not an action. It is a cessation of action. To the extent to which we attend to ourselves, to that extent, we, the, the attending ego, subside, and pure being alone remains. And that pure being is what we actually are. So being in that pure being, that is the supreme devotion. That is the, the true surrender of ourself. The state in which we subside and remain as we actually are, that is true surrender. Is that a clear answer? The second question is, uh, can Bhagwan's teaching help someone who has an extremely agitated and restless mind? That is someone who has an intense addiction or OCD, or does the mind need to be relatively stable and pure for the teachings to be effective? Bhagavan's teachings can help all of us. It can help everyone without any exception. As Bhagavan says in verse 17 of Upadesha India, Manatin Uruvei Maravadu Chaba Manamenamondrile Yundipara, Markum Ne Akum Idundipara. That means, um, uh, Manatin Uruve Maravaja Chaba. Uh, 
when when one uh, investigates the nature of a form or nature of the mind, in other words, if one the reality of the mind is what is implied there, when one investigates the reality of the mind without uh, uh, forgetting or without being negligent, in other words, if we vigilantly investigate ourselves, manomeno mondrile, there be there's no such thing as mind at all. Markum ne arkum idundipara. This is the direct path. Arkum means for everyone who's, whomsoever. This is the direct path. However, so Bhagavan's teachings are there to help all of us. But you can take a horse to water, but you cannot make it drink. Bhagavan teachings are available for us. It's up to us whether we want to avail ourselves of it. If we want to avail ourselves of it, we we will certainly be saved by his teachings. If we want to continue roaming about outside, if we don't want to uh, subside back into the heart, then Bhagavan isn't going to force us. But Bhagavan is, even though outwardly it may seem Bhagavan is just allowing people to go their own way. In the lifetime of Bhagavan, there was Stalin, there was Hitler, there were so many uh, uh, mass murderers and so many atrocities were happening in Bhagavan's lifetime. Why when he was shiny here in this world in human form, why he allowed all these things to happen? Because he gives, he, we are all, he will not force himself on us. We're all free to do whatever actions we want to do and to experience the consequences. If we do bad actions, we'll experience bad consequences. As he says in verse 38, of Uludunabdu, Vine Mudal Nam Ayin, Vile Payan Tui Pom. If we are the doer of actions, we will experience the resulting fruit. So we are free to do whatever we like. We can do, we can do any amount of atrocities if we choose to, but we are thereby missing the opportunity of um of being saved by his following his teachings. So his teachings are available for all. They are a suitable path for everyone, but we will take to his teachings only when we are drawn to them. So most people we can see in the world are not at all, would not even be interested if we start talking about Bhagavan's teaching. Even many of the so-called religious people, they say Bhagavan's teaching goes beyond all religion. It's it's something far too radical for most people. But does that mean Bhagavan is neglecting all those other people? No. He is shining as I in the heart of everyone. His grace is working in the very depth of the heart of all the of all the Hitlers, the Stalins, and from the worst sinner to the greatest saint, he is shining in the heart of all jivas as their own being. And he is doing his work. Earlier, Suzanne was asking about that intense activity. He is working tirelessly for us without doing anything. By just being as he actually is, his grace is working tirelessly to save us. So slowly, 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 he is rectifying the, the, the problems deep in the root of our mind. And slowly, 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 how is it that us ordinary worldly people, how have we been drawn to Bhagavan's path? 
If it's not by his grace, how, why, what has drawn us to his path? It's only his grace. As he used to say, grace is the beginning, the middle, and the end. Grace is what draws us to his path. Grace is what motivates us to follow his path. And grace is finally what will swallow us. So Bhagavan's uh, path is suitable for everyone. If we are ready for it, it's up to us. We, we, we may have a very fickle and wandering mind, but if we pray to Bhagavan, Bhagavan, my mind is such, you, Bhagavan himself prays. See, I, I was earlier talking about some of the verses of Akramlai. Um, he, he was, he sang, Unaye matri oda dulatin mel arunachala. You sit firmly on my mind so that it doesn't run out cheating you. You show your beauty so that my mind, by which by, by, by very nature will be running, roaming about the world. He said beautifully, this heart or mind is roaming about the world so that it may subside. Uh, you show your beauty. So his grace is always working, but his grace, he is infinitely patient. So slowly, slowly, slowly. He not that he's not that he's unnecessarily delaying. He is doing things in the most perfect way possible. He's bringing about the desired end in the quickest way possible. But in order to bring about to that desired end, he has to work through us. And we are often we, we complain. In there's a verse in Guru Kukavai in which Bhagavan says, the accusation of being ungracious should not be made towards God. That is, who is guilty of being ungracious? It is not God, it is the jiva. Because God is ever shining in our heart as our own being. He's nearer and dearer to us than anything. But instead of attending to him, we're rushing out towards the world. So it's not... It's not God who is ungracious to us. We are ungracious to God. So long as we allow our mind to go outwards, we are obstructing the work of his grace. Ramakrishna Paramahamsa said the same thing in his own homely way. He said, for liberation, the grace of three are necessary. The grace of God, the grace of Guru, and the grace of Jiva. The grace of God and grace of Guru is always abundantly available. It is the grace of Jiva that is lacking. That is, we are still allowing our mind to go outwards. And then we complain, oh, why do you give me so much difficulties? I'm suffering so much in this Pararabdha mind. Why this God has given me all these difficulties? We shouldn't be blaming God. We should be blaming ourselves because we're the ones who are going out and courting all these difficulties. If we want to be free of difficulties, we should turn and subside back within. And this path is open to everyone because there is not a single jiva in the whole of creation who is not aware of itself as I. The very, the very nature of ego is the false awareness, I am this body. But in that false awareness, I am this body, which is jiva or ego, there is a real awareness, I am. So this path is open to everyone. The problem is, are we open to it? Are we willing to open our heart and merge back within? That is the big question. So it's up to us.
Bhagavan is doing all that can be done to help us, but we must be willing to cooperate with him by turning and subsiding back within. If our mind is very agitated or very fickle or whatever, pray to Bhagavan. He's, he alone can help us. I mean, he's always helping us. We must be willing to avail ourselves of his help. His help is available. We must avail of it. Should we move to the next question, Michael? Yes, yes, yeah, I think so. Um, the next question is, our real nature, Swarupa, does not accommodate for existence of anything else. So if attention is only on Swarupa, does it mean there is no other object to transfer energy to? And so pure consciousness is pure energy. Is this pure energy our grace, Anugraha? And we are using this to create imaginary universes whenever our attention moves away from Swarupa. Yes, yes, that is... Maya and grace are not two different powers. The same power, when we misuse the power of grace, it's called Maya. That is, when we allow our attention to go outwards, we are using that power to create all this. So rather than uh, using that power in the form of Maya to create all this, we should surrender ourselves to that power allow that power to devour us, that power is the power of grace. So there aren't two powers, one power of Maya and one power of grace. It's the same power being utilized by us in different ways. When we are turning our attention outward, we're using that power of grace to create all of this. That power of grace is the uh, Arul Chit Shakti. The, the, uh, the Chit Shakti means a power of awareness. Which is, and that awareness is itself grace. That's why Bhagavan sometimes spoke of Arul Chit Shakti. Arul means grace, Chit means awareness, Shakti means power. So that the power of awareness is itself grace. If we direct it outwards, we are using that grace to create all of this. That is a misuse of grace. That is, that is using grace in the form of Maya. If we want to, grace to work as grace rather than as Maya, we must turn back within and surrender ourselves to it. Then it will draw us back within and swallow us. Is that a clear answer? Yes, thank you so much, Michael. Right. The next question is, uh, some gurus like Sri Lakshman Swami have said that grace as Arunachala, non-human, non-living guru, uh, uh, can help one on the path to self-realization. But the final pull to suck in the ego, that is the final step, requires the grace of a human guru. He said it was very, very difficult without a, without a living human guru for that final step. I have heard other gurus say that as well. Do you agree with this view? Those who say that do not know what is guru. Bhagavan has revealed to us that guru is not a human being. Guru is not a human form. Though Guru may appear outwardly in human form, as Bhagavan appeared outwardly in human form, but Guru is not a human form. I think, they, if I remember correctly, there's some verse in Guru Vachakukavai in which Bhagavan says, the worst among sinners are those who take Guru to be a person. 
That is, taking Guru to be a person, we have not understood Guru. What Bhagavan revealed to us about Guru, Guru is not physical. Guru may appear outwardly in physical form, but what Guru actually is, is that which is shiny in our heart as I. That is why Guru is powerful. The outward form of Guru is just an outward form. That, where that outward form derives its power from, is from the real Guru, but it's ever shiny in our heart as I. So those like Lakshman Swami who say a living Guru, a living human Guru is necessary, have not understood what is Guru. When people used to ask Sadhuam, is a living Guru necessary? Sadhuam said, yes, a living Guru is absolutely necessary. But if by living Guru, you mean a living person, your living guru will one day become a dead guru. Such a guru is useless. Uh, what we need is an ever-living guru. The ever-living guru is Bhagavan. Because he's not the body, he's eternal. He's, he's, he's that which is ever shining in our heart as I. From, from time immemorial, he's always been shining in our heart as I. He's always been guiding us. That is guru. Bhagavan also says in... in, in uh, in the twelfth paragraph of Nana, Kadavalam uh, Guruvam Unmail Verala. God and Guru are in truth not different. But these people, not understanding the implication of that, they still think Guru is a person, Guru is a human being. So anyone who talks about a human Guru or a living Guru in the sense of a living person has not understood what is Guru. Bhagavan, what Bhagavan has taught us about the real nature of Guru is far, far deeper than the common understanding of Guru that these, these ordinary people have. So it's not a matter of whether I agree with Lakshman Swami or not. Bhagavan strongly disagrees with him if we understand Bhagavan correctly. Anyone who understands Bhagavan correctly will understand that what Lakshman Swami is saying is a complete is a complete antithesis of Bhagavan's teaching. When, people, when Bhagavan was about to uh, leave the body, when people were weeping and saying, oh, Bhagavan, you're going, Bhagavan said, where can I go? I am here. He's here in the heart of each and every one of us. When he was asked who he was, he said, Arunachala Ramana is Paramatma who exists blissfully as awareness in the cave of the heart lotus of all the different jivas, beginning with Hari. Hari means Lord Vishnu. So from the highest God to the smallest insect, what is shiny in the heart of everyone as the pure awareness I am, that is Arunachala Ramana. And how to realize him? He doesn't say, oh, you must go to a living guru. What he says in the next two lines of that ver same verse is, Parival Ulam Uruha, heart melting with love, Nal Paranandidu Guheyandu, reaching the cave where that sublime supreme dwells. Where is that cave? That's within us, not outside. It's not some outside guru, but real guru is inside. Arivam Viri Tirava, the eye of awareness opening. Nijamarivai, you will know this reality, this, this your real nature. Aduveliyam, it will re reveal itself. It will literally, Aduveliyam means it will come out. 
in other words, it will reveal itself. So Bhagavan's path is an inward path. These these would-be gurus who say, you have to come to me, I'm a living guru, they are, they are encouraging people onto an outward path. But, but uh, I, another, I can tell another story to illustrate this. There was a devotee of Bhagavan called Janaki Mata. She lived in Tanjore. She often used to come to Bhagavan. And she had great love for Bhagavan. And um, one day when she was visiting the ashram, she saw Bhagavan returning from a gosala. That's from the cow shed where Lakshmi and the other cows were living. Bhagavan often used to go there to see, to see them. So one day he was returning from the gosala, and just one or two attendants were with him. So she thought, oh, this is a very good opportunity. So she approached him, she prostrated before him, she held his, an his ankles and put her forehead on his feet. Bhagavan stood there quietly and he looked down at her with a smile and said, what are you doing? She said, I'm holding the feet of my guru. Bhagavan said, this body is perishable. These feet are perishable. If you think this, this body is your guru, you will be disappointed. The feet of your guru are shiny in your heart as I. Hold on to those feet. Only those feet can save you. So this shows the real function of the outward form of guru. The only reason why guru appears in outward form is to turn our attention within. But these um, would-be gurus who know nothing about what it means to be a guru, say, you must have a living guru. They're telling you to go outwards. Bhagavan tells you to go inwards. So Bhagavan doesn't even accept his own form as the form of guru. He said, this body is perishable. It's going to die. Wake up. Listen to, we should pay attention to Bhagavan's teachings. What Bhagavan says, guru is that which is shining in your heart as I. He's turning up, but his the function of the outward form of guru is only to turn our attention within. Not to, so the real guru will not say, come to me. The real guru will say, go to you. You salvation lies only in your heart, not outside. It, I hope that's you, a Mike. clear answer. Yes, thank you, Michael. I just have one follow-up question. Yes. Um Sri Lakshmana Swami was a devotee of um, I'm just reading his book right now, no, the David yeah. Godman's book on him, No Mind yeah. No Yourself yeah. on him and Saradama. He was a devotee, a well-known devotee of uh, Ramana Maharshi, and he's at least widely recognized as having been self-realized, uh, including by he, David Godman. He just, said wanted... he said he said I'm self-realized. He claimed he's the one who claims it. People believe him. What do what are we to do? But his teachings are quite against Bhagavan's teachings. That's the point. But if you want to take him, let him be self-realized, but don't believe what he says about living guru is necessary because that is not Bhagavan's teachings. Okay. Thank you, Michael. In this world, anyone can claim to be self-realized. I can claim to be self-realized. You can claim to be self-realized. And if you can convince enough people, then you'll get a reputation of being self-realized. But what is the use of that? What let 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 a billion people uh, vote that you are self-realized. Let eight billion people. There are now eight billion people in this world. Let all of them vote that you're self-realized. How does that help you? Is that going to save you? The certificate of the world is not going to save us. If we are wise, we will. 
we will leave the world and turn our attention back within. That is where salvation lies. Salvation does not lie in the praise and appreciation of the world. Gaining name and fame in this world never did any good to anyone. In fact, name and fame are very, very dangerous for a true devotee. A true devotee is the one who turns and subsides back within. Thank you, Michael. So, all namaskaram to Lakshman Sami, let him be great, but let us not let us discriminate and decide what what we should understand Bhagavan's teachings, not the teachings of others. If we understand Bhagavan's teaching, then we will see the, the defects in the teachings of others. How can Guru be a body? How can the power of Guru be limited to a body? In effect, he's saying, what Lakshman Sami is in effect is saying, Bhagavan's power has gone, or Bhagavan's power is not sufficient because he's left the body. So you must come to me. Is that any, no true devotee of Bhagavan will claim that Bhagavan's power is any less after he left the body than it was when he was with the body. In fact, Sadhuam said quite the opposite. He said, so long as Bhagavan was there in, in physical form, a subtle maya was there over our eyes. For example, Sadhuam was a poet, so he often used to uh, compose songs on Bhagavan or verses, and he would give his verses to Bhagavan, and he felt satisfaction when Bhagavan read his verses. But then he reflected to himself, what a fool I am. Where do these verses come from? They can come only from Bhagavan. So uh, composing these verses, offering to Bhagavan is like pinching the, the jaggery, um, the toe from the, from the jaggery Ganesha and offering to the jaggery Ganesha. So, it, 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 Sadhuam said, so long as Bhagavan was there in the body, there was that subtle maya, but Bhagavan is there in the old hall in Ramanasham. If we're not in Ramanasham, we're away from Bhagavan. That is a subtle maya. That maya, Bhagavan removed that maya when he cast off this body. So now we all understand wherever we are, what Bhagavan taught us, he is that which is shining in our heart as I. So why should we go to any guru outside when Bhagavan is always shining? He's assured us so clearly, but he's always shining in our heart as I. Where, what greater help can we get from anyone outside than we are already getting from Bhagavan, who's ever shining in our heart? That's why I say what Lakshman Swami teaches is diametrically opposite to what Bhagavan teaches us. That's why we need discrimination. We need to understand Bhagavan's teachings correctly. Then we won't be misled by these people who say all these things. Otherwise, if we believe anyone who claims to be self-realized, there are hundreds of thousands of people claiming to be self-realized who are teaching all sorts of gibberish. The real clarity can come only from following Bhagavan's path because the source of clarity is within our own heart. Bhagavan directs our attention back to that source of clarity. That source of clarity alone is the real Guru. And that is shining in our heart as our own being. So if we want to follow Guru, 
guru, if we want to get guru's grace, we need to stop going outwards and go back within. So long as we think we need a living guru outside, our mind is going outwards. That's the opposite direction to Bhagavan, the direction in which Bhagavan is trying to push our mind. And of course we like that. It's always nice to have some excuse to come outwards. Can I ask a question, Shalini? Yes, certainly. Yeah, it's regarding what you said, the pull for going out mm. so strong. And actually it also goes back on what you just said about guru and, you know, Bhagavan being the real guru, whatever you call it. Yeah. And Bhagavan never really said that he was a guru. He never wanted no, no, disciple no, following. No. And that's why I always think, I mean, I've been following lots of path. He seems like the real deal. And I really want to embrace this, you know, fully 100%. Yes. But, you know, yes. as a mortal being, I do get pulled and sometimes I'm trying to create good gifts and things, but nonetheless, I'm, I'm, I'm a doer rather than a being, you know, it's such a challenge in but, but how do I show myself up as a intense disciple or a follower of this path? Because like you said, this is the real deal. There's no yeah. other path. And this is, you know, this is yes. such a grace. I found this path. And I need to do justice to it because in the past, I don't know what I've been. I probably have was a chapter of under kings and gods and being, a, being this self and finding this path. You know, we understand this. And Michael, you say it so beautifully. I follow you all the time. You, you're so consistent in your teaching. And I listen to quite a lot of It's not my teaching, it's Bhagavan's teaching. I know, I know. It's not exactly because it's not yours, your instrument. I yeah. know nothing. I'm just it's a beautiful I'm, instrument. It's a beautiful instrument. You've got to keep it nice and shiny for us. Um, but how how does a mortal person like me show up, which takes the grace of this teaching? So my the life has fundamental meaning. error is thinking I am a mortal person. A mortal okay. person is this body. Fine. So okay, fine. Th th that is the nature of ego is to identify itself as I am this person. And so long as we rise as ego, mm. the nature of ego is to have Vishaya Vasanas. Vishaya Vasanas, Vishayas means objects or phenomena. In other words, the whole world is Vishayas, all our thoughts, all our feelings, everything other than ourselves is a Vishaya, all objects, all phenomena are Vishayas. Vasana means inclination. So the inclination to seek happiness in Vishayas, in anything other than ourselves, that is a Vishaya Vasana. And the very nature of ego is to have Vishaya Vasanas, because as Bhagavan says, in verse 25 of Ulanapri, what we talked about earlier, grasping form, it comes into existence. Grasping form, it stands. Grasping form, grasping and feeding on form, it flourishes abundantly. Leaving form, it grasps form. So the very nature of ego is to grasp form. All the forms that it grasps are what are called vishayas. In other words, all objects or phenomena are forms or vishayas. And because it's the nature, ego cannot stand without grasping form. The nature of ego is to have Vishaya Vasana, the inclination to grasp things, because it depends upon grasping things for its survival. So what Bhagavan has taught us, we have to turn, we have to about turn, turn around 180 degrees. Now our mind is going outwards. We need to redirect it back within. That's what Bhagavan's teachings are all about, about turning our attention back within. Back within means 
not not to ruminate on the thoughts in the mind. That's what there the mind and its thoughts are all uh, outside. Bahia, there's something other than ourself. Turning within means turning our attention back towards ourself, turning away from everything that appears to the one to whom it appears. That's why Bowen gave this very nice clue. Whatever may appear, we should investigate to whom it appears. To whom does everything appear? To me. So we have to investigate this me. Who am I? That doesn't mean we ask for questions. He said investigate to whom. Investigate who am I. That means we need to look within ourselves. So on a practical level, sorry, if I'm making a cup of tea or whatever, just keep on asking that question, having that kind of thought or what is no, it? Just... No need to ask the question. If you if asking the question, if it helps you to remember to attend to yourself, that's okay. But mm -hmm. question is not the inquiry. It, the inquiry or in, it's an investigation that we need to look at ourselves to see what we actually are. Doesn't matter wh who is making the cup of tea, it's the body is making the cup of tea. It doesn't matter what the body is doing, what the speech is doing, what the mind is doing, whatever these instruments may be doing, you are aware I am. You may be aware I am doing this. Of course, the doing this bit is the ignorant, but I am is the truth. So whatever mm. else you may be doing, you are always aware of yourself as I am. Throughout the waking state, you're aware I am. Throughout the dream state, you're aware I am. Throughout sleep, when you're aware of nothing else whatsoever, you're aware of your own being, I am. So but that awareness I am is the one thing that is ever shining. It is the one thing that is real. So we should hold on to that. That is guru. That is the real guru. That The purpose of the outward guru is only to turn us back to to a real guru that is ever shining in our heart as I. Bhagavan made that so abundantly clear. That's why Bhagavan never said, I am guru. Because if he says, I am guru, we will take the body to be guru. He doesn't want us to take that body to be guru. He has appeared in that body form, in that human form, in order to tell us the term within, where, the, where he is always shining as the real guru in our heart, as our own being. The problem about the inclination of the mind to go outward, that is the same for all of us. We are all, all up against that. The only way to overcome that is by patiently and persistently practicing what Bhagavan taught us, namely trying to turn our attention back within. However many times the mind comes outwards, we need to turn it back within. Bhagavan says in, in, in the sixth paragraph of Nana, etene enengalere nomena, however many thoughts rise, so what? Thoughts rising means our attention going outwards towards things other than ourselves. What is called the rising of thoughts is nothing but our attention going outwards. So we have to turn that attention back within. That's all there is to it. So it doesn't matter how many times it goes outwards, we have to turn it back within. That's the only way. Patient and persistent practice is the only way to succeed. So we shouldn't be disheartened because it seems difficult. Yes, it does seem difficult, but actually it's, this is the easiest thing of all. Bhagavan had very, said it very explicitly. It seems difficult because we don't want to do it. But if we try patiently, persistently to practice this, slowly, slowly, the liking to 
subside back within, that is called Vasatvasana, that will grow, and the liking to go outward, the Vishayavasana, will decrease. So practice is the only way. Practice and be patient. We need to be patient. If you, 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 you can't persistently practice unless you're very, very patient. Because the nature of the mind, it keeps on jumping out. However many times it jumps out, we need to bring it back within. That requires great patience. And the very embodiment of patience is Bhagavan and Arunachala. Bhagavan sings in the, the second last verse of um, Aksharamlai, Horumayam Buddhara, kill which is patience. Arunachala is the very embodiment of patience. We need to learn from that. We need to be patient. We need to persevere. However much difficulty we seem to face, we need to persevere. That is the only way to succeed. And Bhagavan is always there, always supporting us, always helping us. It is Bhagavan who is telling us that, that is Bhagavan's always doing this in persistent, patient practice is required. Thank you. I have no doubt I had the grace of Bhagavan and people like you. No, that's what's brought me to this path. Thank you. The grace of Bhagavan is your own real nature. That which is shining in your heart as I, that is Bhagavan. That is, Bhagavan and his grace are not two different things. So his grace is ever shining in you as I. He is ever shining in you as I. The problem is we allow our mind to go outwards. We need to turn it back within. And, and lose ourselves, allow his grace to swallow us. The next question is from Olena. Uh, thank you very much, Shalini. Uh, hello, Michael. Uh -huh. uh, first of all, thank, thank you so much for everything. And the first part, it was absolutely amazing. And um, uh, it just, uh, it is not maybe a question, it's just, uh, again, clarification, maybe uh, I would like to uh, hear something from you, again, about uh, Guru's topic, this subject. Uh, uh, first of all, I, I would like to mention Lakshmana Swami, because maybe uh, it was said a little bit like, maybe not that much correctly uh, about him, he never claimed that he is guru actually as far as i remember i mean that uh, there was even this rumors or stories that he even didn't want to see anyone uh, uh, i mean he, he didn't he didn't make some celebrity from himself uh, as far as i remember i don't of course know 100% exactly but i mean that uh, this is what about lakshmana swami but but the idea is uh, that um, uh, somehow this idea, this uh, thing was like implanted may, maybe not in uh, only into my mind but in many people's minds uh, that uh, you have to have by guru uh, to complete this process of self-realization i know that you michael don't take it too close because i know that <laughs> i know your reaction i know uh, that uh, it, it sounds odd but i mean that uh, and i what i wanted to say that i also thought because i mean from other uh, people uh, and quite uh, with um, i mean that we know them and actually uh, it sounded like something really serious when uh, you for example you have to, have to find uh, some guru 
human looking guru let's let's put it like this and uh, he she will uh, just uh, do something about to finish but again uh, uh, again this uh, such examples like for example uh, buddha who actually didn't have guru to finish he just was sitting under like they say at least uh, under this tree and uh, and so on i mean that uh, it doesn't it doesn't seem uh, like this uh, that we need really someone and of course i 100% somehow i trust that of course uh, that uh, our own first of all efforts and uh, and uh, play a role and uh, uh, and we are already that yes so so and uh, this i am is always here so uh, that is why of course uh, this guru idea it just create um, extra agitation in our mind and uh, we do wrong things instead of doing some proper things so this is what i wanted to 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 tell to say right um bhagavan never said guru is not necessary though bhagavan never said i am guru he said guru is necessary but he said guru is always shining in your heart as i to the the function of the outward form of guru is to turn you your attention within so Bhagavan isn't saying Guru is not necessary, he's just saying Guru is not something outside of you. Because our attention is going outwards, it may be necessary for Guru to appear in human form in order to tell us to go within. But if instead of following what the Guru teaches us to go within, if we continue going outwards looking for a living Guru or a Guru in human form, we have missed the point. Bhagavan is as alive now as he ever was. But Bhagavan is not the body. If he were the body, then he would have, he would have been... The body died in 1950, that's uh, 73 years ago. Has Bhagavan's power in any way diminished because of uh, uh, shedding the body? Just think about it. Do you really... Can, we re can any devotee of Bhagavan put their hand on their heart and say they believe but Bhagavan's power is less now than it was when he was in the body. Of course not. Of course not. So we, 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 it's obvious. Bhagavan is he's he is guru even now. Just, just because the body has gone, because that's why Bhagavan, from the beginning, he emphasized guru is ever shining in your heart as I. Guru and God are not different. So there's not a single jiva in the whole universe who is lacking Guru, because Guru is shining in the heart of each and every one of us. Yes, but uh, I mean that the idea uh, that, um, I mean, that we were told that... Uh, that that, is, that is the ordinary worldly understanding. People take Guru to be a person. And that's, that's why in most traditions, in the Shankara tradition, in most traditions, they have what is called a, a parampara, a, a, a succession of gurus. So each guru will appoint a successor, and after the guru dies, that successor becomes the guru. That is the worldly understanding of guru. That's why Bhagavan gave us a far deeper and more refined um, understanding of what is guru. Guru is not the person. Guru may appear in human form, but that human form is not the Guru. Guru is that which is shining in Mahatma. That is why Bhagavan never 
that nowadays there are so many gurus who claim would be gurus. I'm not real gurus, but these uh, two a penny gurus who are uh, so they claim I I'm in the 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 Ramana lineage. But there is no Ramana lineage because Bhagavan never never appointed any successor. Why? Because that is that would give the wrong idea of what is guru. Guru is not a person. Bhagavan fulfilled the outward role of guru by coming and giving us his teachings. So any for any true devotee of Bhagavan, no other guru is necessary. Exactly, because uh, if you read Bhagavan's teachings, you already just understand that uh, this is the this is everything that ha had to be done for us. Everything yes. had to be said uh, yes. for us. And uh, the only thing is how we really understood what was said. And, and put it into practice, yes. <laughs> Actually, and that's We will understand it only to the extent to which we put it into practice. If we don't go deep in the practice, we won't be able to understand Bhagavan's words. Because however clearly Bhagavan may say it in words, his words had to go through the filter of our mind. And if, if we've got a clouded understanding, we'll have a cloudy, we, we will, our mind will cloud and distort what Bhagavan has taught us. That is why Bhagavan said the real clarity comes only from within. That is why Guru, the real teaching is the silent teaching, but it, and that silent teaching is ever going on in our heart. But in order to, um, to gain clarity from that, we need to turn within. If you turn away from the light and cl complain that you can't see, it's, you need, we need to turn our attention towards the light. The more we look within towards that light of pure awareness that's ever shiny in our heart as I, the more we are thereby immersing ourselves in that clarity, that clarity will purify and clarify our mind. And only when, to the extent to which the mind is purified and clarified will we be able to understand Bhagavan's words. So we need to understand Bhagavan's words to a certain extent in order to begin putting it into practice. But the more we put it into practice, the more clearly we will understand the meaning and implication of his words. Exactly. This is what I also wanted just to say that uh, to agree with you that uh, actually we have to first uh, uh, do our <clears throat> do our part <clears throat> and uh, uh, to uh, get some uh, amount uh, of viveka. Yes, because, that and comes then, only from turning within. Yes, the guru is always doing his part. We need to do our part. Yes, by turning within. Because I think all such problems uh, appear just because uh, we miss this point that uh, there is our part of this thing, the, the, yeah. the whole thing that uh, actually without Viveka, without, without uh, uh, real uh, serious understanding, we will be constantly, be, we will be trapped constantly yes. in some such things. Yes. Okay. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you. Right. All thanks to Bhagavan. <laughs>